Dr. H.A. Ironside, in his commentary on Galatians, tells the story about a young Navajo Indian boy that he took with him to Oakland, California, on one of his trips. That Sunday evening, he went to the youth meeting at church. The young people were discussing the book of Galatians and the difference between law and grace, but they were having difficulty defining the difference. So they turned to the young Indian and said, I wonder if our Indian friend has anything to say about this. The young Navajo Indian rose to his feet and said, Well, my friends, I have been listening very carefully to learn all that I can so I can take it back to my people. I do not understand what you are talking about, and I do not think you do yourselves. But concerning law and grace, I think it is like this. When Mr. Ironside brought me from my home and we took a long train ride, we got out in Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station I have ever seen. It even had a hotel above it. I walked around admiring its beauty. At one end of the station, I saw a sign. The sign said, Do not spit here. I looked down at the ground and saw that many had spitted there, and before I know what I am doing, I spit myself. Isn't that strange? When the sign says, Do not spit here. I come to Oakland and to the home of the nice lady where I had dinner today. It is the nicest home I have ever been in in my life. There was beautiful furniture and soft carpets everywhere. I hate to step on them. I sat in a very comfortable chair, and the lady said that she would go see if the maid had dinner yet ready yet. I look around the room at all the beautiful pictures, and I am looking for something. I see a great piano and many tables and lamps. I get up and look around, for I am still looking for something. I am looking for a sign that says, Do not spit here. But I cannot find a sign anywhere like that. I think to myself, what a pity to have such a beautiful home and everyone will be spitting all over it. It's too bad that they don't put up a sign. So I look all over the carpet to find where people have spitted. It is a very strange thing because I cannot find where anyone has spitted. It's very strange. Where the sign says, do not spit here, a lot of people spitted. Where there is no sign... Nobody spitted. Now I understand. That sign is law, but inside the home is grace. The people love their home and want to keep it nice. I think that explains this law and grace business. And he sat down. He had it exactly right, my friends. There is great theology in his analogy. When you are forced by law to live certain ways, you rebel against the law. But when you are brought into the family of God by grace, you want to do what is right out of love and gratitude. The message of Galatians chapter 3 is that we leave law by faith to become sons and daughters by grace. Paul is bringing his theme to a crescendo of truth in the last verses of Galatians 3. 
Here we have the classic statement in all of Scripture regarding our equality and unity in the Church of Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, that we leave law by faith, verses 23 to 25 of Galatians 3. We leave law by faith. Paul wrote, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Paul pictures the law, first of all, as a jailer who keeps us under custody, imprisoned by law, until faith arrives to set us free, to release us. Therefore, the law leads us to faith in verse 23. The verb translated, kept in custody, was a word which meant to guard. It was used of posting a military guard around a town or home. The Greek construction would indicate that this was an ongoing experience of the law until faith came. Faith is the key that unlocks our liberation from the law. But what faith is Paul talking about here? He's already established that faith existed long before the law because Abraham was a man of faith. So Paul is not talking about faith in general or the principle of faith. He is talking about the faith he has just mentioned in verse 22, and that's very specific. Verse 22 reads, But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It is faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in general, that serves as the dividing line or watershed with respect to the law's imprisonment. Verse 23 could well be translated, This faith or that faith. Now that faith in Christ has arrived, we are no longer obligated by the law. Christ is the liberator. He has set us free from the jailer who shut us up in prison with only one exit, Christ. So in essence, the law leads us to Christ in verses 24 to 25. Paul changes the analogy from a prison to a family. He explains the law by way of an analogy to a child custodian or pedagogue in a Roman family. The King James Version uses the term schoolmaster, and the New American Standard uses the term tutor. But this person was not a teacher, an instructor in the formal sense of the word. They had teachers to instruct their children. This person was usually a slave or a servant whom wealthy families used to oversee and care for their child from age 6 to about age 16. This child custodian was more of a disciplinarian. He was a glorified babysitter who controlled the child's life until he came of age. The child custodian, the pedagogue, would take the child to school and wait for him in a special room built for pedagogues. 
He would then take him home to make sure that he did not wander into bad company or associate with the wrong friends. The child custodian would help the child practice good manners and did not hesitate to use the birch switch or cuff him on the head if he failed. He would make him recite his new lessons and would oversee every aspect of his development, including his meals. There were cases in the legal system where the child custodian would beat up the cook for giving the child too much to eat. Why? Because the child custodian was held accountable by his boss, the father, for the development, the healthy development of that child. The point of the child custodian was to protect that child from as many evil influences as possible until the child was old enough to make up his own mind about life. Then he was old enough to be responsible for his own choices. The law, then, performs this same function. Israel was protected under the Mosaic law as the child custodian until Jesus Christ came to set them free from the law. One purpose of the law is to confine and control the person until he can make a responsible decision about Christ. The purpose of the law is to protect a person from as much evil as possible until he is ready to follow Christ. So, for example, a person who follows the Ten Commandments is protected from a certain amount of the sin's consequences. They won't mess up their lives by following the Ten Commandments. The law keeps them safe from the consequences of bad choices. However, as you can imagine, it was with great relief that the young man would leave the child custodian behind and be free to make his own decisions, usually when he was about 16 or 17 years old. So also, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we leave the law behind as an imperfect way to produce righteousness. The law performed its purpose by acting as a fence around us to protect us from sinful influences. But it could never do any more than act like the walls of a compound. In the end, only Christ can give us life, and that comes only by faith. There are many practical ways to apply these principles to our lives. Here's a good example. Young people, you have lived with the protective walls of your parents' rules, but sooner or later you will leave those walls behind. You will make your own decisions and take responsibility for your own actions. And when that happens, your parents are no longer responsible for you before God. The rules that your parents set up to govern your lives can never save you. They do not make you righteous, but they do protect you from getting into bigger messes in life. Going to church cannot save you, and neither can keeping all the rules of the Bible. Sooner or later, you will have to decide if you will put your faith in Christ and trust him with your life or not. It will be your choice, and no one else can make it for you. Will you put your faith in Christ or go your own way in life? That is your decision. 
My friends, we first leave the law by faith, and then second, in verses 26 to 29, we become sons by grace. We become sons by grace. Paul writes in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. According to Paul's analogy, when you put your faith in Christ, you leave childhood behind and become an adult son of God. There's an old expression that says, God the Father has no grandchildren. The point is that every believer is equally a son or a daughter of God, no matter their age or when they came to Christ. There are only sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We are all equal by the grace of God. Paul goes on to tell us that sonship means three things in these verses. First, in verse 27, sonship means relationship. Sonship means relationship. For all of you, who were baptized into Christ, verse 27, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul is not saying here that you must be baptized in water to be saved. This would negate his whole argument that rituals cannot save you. What you do does not make you righteous, does not save you. Only what Christ has done can make us right with God. Paul is using baptism as a word picture of what takes place spiritually when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek word to baptize means to dip or immerse. It was used of dipping clothes in a vat of dye to change their color. The Christians adopted the Jewish practice of dipping one under water as a symbol of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Baptism identified that person with Christ. Paul explained the picture of baptism in more detail in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Submerging a person under water is a symbol of their death, and when they come up out of the water, it is a symbol of new life in Christ, the resurrection life. The whole ritual pictures a spiritual reality which takes place in the believer. He or she has a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Paul also teaches us another aspect of baptism in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 when he tells us that we were all baptized into one body, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in him, we are baptized into the church. So baptism means nothing less than death to self, alive to God, and a member of the church, the body of Christ. We have a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with other Christians. Both relationships are necessary parts of our son sonship experience by faith in Christ. 
Paul goes on to use another image to drive home the same point. We clothe ourselves with Christ when we put our faith in him. He pictures us discarding our old dirty clothes in favor of putting on Christ's clean clothes. The idiom meant that we take on his character. We become like Christ so that the world identifies us with Christ because we have entered into a relationship with him by faith. We become little Christs or Christians in this world. Our identity is wrapped up in Christ. Who are we? We are Christians. So sonship means relationship, and secondly, sonship means oneship in verse 28. Sonship means oneship. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction in Christ. There's no racial distinction, Jew or Greek, meaning Gentile. There's no racial distinction. There's no social distinction, slave or free. And there's no gender distinction, male or female. Now this is a remarkable statement for a Jew to make in the first century. The structure of this statement mirrors the morning prayers that all Jewish men repeated daily, except in reverse. It is the polar opposite of what Paul had been taught to say in his prayers for years and years. Jewish men were taught to pray this prayer in the morning. And here it is. Blessed be he, God, blessed be he that did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that did not make me a slave. Blessed be he that did not make me a woman. Christ totally transforms our relationships. So there are no such distinctions, no such advantages or disadvantages anymore in Jesus Christ. But what does that mean in practical terms? We have to be careful here in our interpretation of the text. Let me begin by suggesting what I believe Paul is not saying here, and then explain in what ways our relationships are transformed. The verse has been used to extend far beyond what Paul is talking about in this context. Paul is not saying that ethnic differences cease to exist or that women cease to be women, or that slaves cease to be slaves when they become Christians. Women are still women, men are still men, and slaves are still slaves. Paul is not denying that there are racial, social, and gender distinctions that exist in our world. And he tells slaves to remain in that condition and not to worry about their slavery in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 20 to 22. So if you are able to become free, great, he says, but if not, remain a slave. Just remember that in Christ you are free. Now, of course, the result of this doctrine of our equality in Christ would challenge society to realize that slavery, 
by that I mean the ownership of another human being made in the image of God, slavery is morally wrong. Owning a company that employs workers is not morally wrong, even though there are functional differences between owners and workers. Yet in Christ, owners and workers, too, are equal. Even in the church, Paul indicates that certain gender distinctions continue to exist, and he sets up guidelines to maintain those distinctions in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, as well as in 1 Timothy 2. I realize that there are many today who would deny what I have just said, but I cannot cut those portions of Scripture out of the Bible or say that Paul made a mistake when he said those things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My friends, Paul is not saying that there are no functional distinctions in the church. He is not talking about functional equality here at all. He is not talking about the roles we assume or the functions we perform in an orderly society. What is Paul talking about? He is talking about our identity in Christ, who we are as Christians, not what we do in this world. Paul is talking about spiritual equality in this passage. We are all equal in our standing before God. But we do not all serve in the same roles, positions, or functions with respect to society. As we stand before God the Father, we all stand on level ground. We are all equally sons and daughters of God. I am no more saved than you. Men are not more important to God than women. Whites do not stand above blacks in God's value system. The powerful and wealthy eat at the same Lord's table with the powerless and the impoverished. Caste systems have no place in the church. We are all one in Christ. Sonship means oneship. We are all equally part of the body of Christ even though we serve in different roles and perform different functions. So the mouth is not more important than the toe, and the hand is not more important than the ear in the body of Christ. Now they don't cease to be hands and ears or tongues, but they are all equally part of the body. Whether we are black or white, whether we are wealthy or poor, whether we are male or female, whether we are an employer or an employee, whether we are slave or free, we stand on equal ground before Jesus Christ. That simple concept revolutionizes our relationships with one another in this great body of Christ called the church. There are no second or third class Christians in the church. One of the hot-button topics in American Christianity today is critical race theory, particularly as it is being taught in our schools. Twenty-seven states have introduced laws to restrict the teaching of critical race theory, while 14 states are taking steps to expand the teaching in our schools. Pastors and Christian leaders are speaking out about it. Critical race theory began to be taught at the university level in the 1970s and developed out of the twin philosophical streams of critical legal studies and radical feminism. 
It is a philosophical construct or framework that views all human relationships through the lens of racial identity. As an analytical tool to help us understand racism, it can be useful, and there is truth in the theory. As Christians, we should agree with critical race theory that all humans tend toward racism because all humans are inherently sinful, and racism is one example of our depravity as human beings. We need to root out those tendencies in ourselves and in our culture. However, when critical race theory makes race central to our identity as humans, and the only lens through which we can view our relationships in this world, it is theologically wrong. Neither race, nor for that matter gender, are central to our identity as Christians. Our identity is found in Christ, no matter what our race, no matter what our gender. We are equal in Christ. There is no difference in our identity as Christians, whether we are black or white or male or female. The cross is the great equalizer for humanity. We are one in Christ. He redeems us from our racism and our gender bias to make us one in him. There is no place for any caste system at the foot of the cross. I grew up in Pakistan, and we white Christians in Pakistan worshipped in a church composed of many who were not only people of color, but were part of the sweeper community. They were the people who worked by sweeping the open sewers that lined the streets. They were considered the lowest of the low in the caste system of the region. However, in the church, they worshipped equally with the businessmen, the lawyers, and the doctors, and we white missionaries. They didn't stop doing their jobs as sweepers, but when they came to church, we were equal in Christ. Sonship means relationship, and sonship means oneship. Finally, sonship means heirship in verse 29. Sonship means heirship. We have the same inheritance. Paul writes, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Paul has been arguing throughout Galatians that Abraham is the prime example of faith. So all those who believe are Abraham's spiritual offspring, Galatians 3, 7-9. Once again, we must qualify what Paul is saying here because many have taken this passage beyond his point. We are Abraham's spiritual seed by faith, but we are not his biological seed. There is still a future inheritance for Abraham's biological seed because we surely do not inherit the land promises of Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Ethnic Israel will still inherit those promises because God keeps his word to his people. We do, however, inherit the spiritual promise made to Abraham through life in union with Christ by faith. We are Abraham's spiritual seed. 
the spiritual inheritance we enjoy is explained in Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. In him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. What is our inheritance? We inherit eternal redemption. We are redeemed forever, so that we who were dead now have eternal life. Christ redeemed us to be his possession to the praise of God's glory forever. Our inheritance is to enjoy God from now into eternity. The Westminster Confession of Faith has an excellent expression of this truth. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We glorify God the most when we enjoy him the most, to paraphrase John Piper. We start enjoying God now, but our enjoyment of God will last forever. This is our inheritance by faith in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is our down payment or pledge that God gives us until we receive our full inheritance. That means that the fellowship we have with each other and with God here on this earth that is produced by the Holy Spirit, he's the down payment, is but a foretaste, a foretaste of what we will enjoy one day in heaven. The Holy Spirit guarantees that we will receive God's promise and we can now live by faith in our future inheritance. Jesus Christ promised his disciples that he was building his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We are that church because we have left the law by faith to become the sons and daughters of God by grace. We are the church. We are the seed of Abraham. We are one in Christ. We are equal in Christ. I am in love with the church of Jesus Christ. I know, I know. The church is tattered and battered, and some think are broken. There are those who believe we ought to give up on her and bury the church as an anachronism in this modern world. Not me. Not me. Friends, I'm not saying that I love some mystical experience or some hypothetical idealistic church. No, I love the flesh and blood church made up of people like you and like me. With all her faults and cracks, with all her failures and foibles, with all of her petty squabbles and sinful hypocrisy, the church is still the church that God is building in this world. Picture in your mind a gigantic heavenly plain. Spread out across that plain, as far as the eye can see, are people of every tribe and nation, of every color and ethnicity, 
we are gathered to give glory to God who saved us by his grace. We may have been battered and bruised down through history. Kings and governments tried to obliterate us from the face of this earth. Satan and his hordes have tried to destroy us. We may have clawed one another in petty arguments and wounded one another with our biting words, slicing and dicing those who disagreed with us. We may have soiled ourselves with sin and muddied ourselves with immorality. We may not always look pretty, but here we are totally by God's grace. We don't deserve to stand on that heavenly plane, but we will by God's grace. All the pettiness is behind us. All the pain is forgotten. All the hurts are forgiven. All the struggle is gone. We will shout with the millions of other believers down through history and around this globe, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That is our destiny, my friends. We should demonstrate our destiny in the world today. Wouldn't it be wonderful for the world to see black, white, red, and brown Christians worshiping as equals in the church? What a testimony that would be to the radical, redeeming, transforming power of Christ to a world broken by caste systems, racial superiority, gender identity, and economic oppression. We are one in Christ at the foot of the cross.